Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com for more on Walter's music. Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. We couldn't do this without you. Robin Collier, KCEI in Taos, thank you also for airing the show. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I would like to remind you, we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, build your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to go to, to start that process. So today I have a new friend on. Her name is Julie Hatch. I met Julie about a month or so ago at an afternoon birthday gathering on Spooks Branch Road just off of Merriman Avenue in Asheville, North Carolina. And as you do in a gathering in the afternoon, you stand around, eat a little bit of cake and talk about things. Julie and I gathered around the cake and we started to talk about different subjects. And we quickly moved to what she is interested in, which is herbal medicine and all things natural and engaging in the process of developing a deep relationship with the natural world, so much so she can use many of the elements that one finds in the natural world to address some of the human health conditions that we all experience. So we talked for 40 minutes about her work, and I thought, what a great opportunity to get more information about the medicinal world from somebody who really knows what she's talking about. So Julie, uh, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you so much for having me. One of the things that intrigued me when we were talking, I asked you a question and I'd like to begin with that question. You were talking about the different elements in nature that you can put together in the healing work you do that will help people improve. And you were also talking about how plants communicate and how you communicate with plants. And I asked you a question. I said, well, do plants argue? Do they all get along? And you said, well, no, they don't, which really piqued my curiosity because it never occurred to me until that moment that maybe plants don't necessarily like each other. Some do, some don't. So would you start there and build out a bit around that idea plus your enthusiasm and your studies around the natural world. Tell us where you are, what you do, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Well, right now I'm in Barnardsville, North Carolina. To answer your question, it's a really fun truth, I think, to creation, right? It's like we're all these unique beings and we're all made up of different elements and different predominant energies and personalities. And so the plants are no different. They also have signatures and specific essences that come through them. And so just as humans around a table or at a party are drawn to certain people, we're all drawn to certain energies and repelled by others. And so in that way, the plants also, like some of them really get along very well. 
and some of them are maybe not as drawn to one another. That's the reason that life functions as it does on this planet. We all got along so well and everything was so abundant and flourishing. There would be no crocodile in the lagoon. Everything can't get along so perfectly or there'd be so much life that it would cease to exist. We need this sort of opposition um, in order for there to be a zero point of life. Let me ask this. We at the dinner table, if we're drawn to somebody, we scoot closer and have a conversation. If we are repelled, we move away or maybe even leave the room. The plants don't have that option. They are rooted in the ground or wherever they happen to be. I've not seen too many plants, if, if any, get up and walk away. So they're located where they have to be because that's that's where their root system belongs. How do plants create the space they need between each other to get along? Is that done in the natural world over an evolutionary period of time? There's so many things interacting all at the same time, right? Like there's the the consciousness of the earth and we think of like a seed on a plant and it goes through the wind and maybe a bird eats some and it poops it somewhere. And, you know, then there's that decision that the seed has and that the earth has this two-way communication of, is this home? We have that same kind of thing in us. Like we go to a new city, we go to a new town, we meet people and we think like, is this home? Is this my new space? Um, so I think they have that free will. Will that seed sprout? And does it feel like that's a place where they're going to be able to have that sacred reciprocity in nature? You know, they can feed the environment, environment feed them on a physical level. And then on an energetic level, are these my friends? Are these my my allies? I just realized I'm framing all of my questions around a human perspective yes. rather than the plant perspective. When you think of the time involved in the natural world and how it does have its own pace mm -hmm. unrelated to whether i feel subjectively hurried or or not then the natural selection where the pine tree lands versus the bush that doesn't get along with the pine tree that natural selection has been in place so long that maybe there's not even an issue about where the plants come up they come up in the order they need to come up in order to keep that balance running properly yeah, it's, it's interesting coming from a human mind. I find that the way that we're best able to understand and perceive the plants is from the heart because the mind, it's a great tool. But as far as being able to really dive into the spirit of the plant, the essence, all humans have a spirit. Every plant has a spirit. There's an essence that comes through everything. Even the elements have spirits. The fire that heats our home, but the spirit of the fire that was the original fire. It's the fire at the center of creation that's burning and will never grow out. Working with the heart to communicate with the plants is crucial and really understanding and being able to hear them and making sure we're not projecting our own, which is part of the process, of course, you know, when we first start to want to connect to plants and hear their voices, it's natural to still be in our heads. And even the mind can be a really good tool of teaching us the spirit of the plants. As we're around anybody, our mind shifts, right? So it's like, if you're sitting with the plant, you can watch how even the thoughts that are going through your head change based on the plants you're around. And we may think our minds are disconnected from our hearts or the other organs. The skin is an organ that covers the whole body. Actually, yeah. though, the mind's not disconnected from the heart. The heart and the mind are all functioning in the same, at the same time in the same body. So mm -hmm. maybe, again, we're just trying to frame all this from a human point of view rather than... And, but why wouldn't we frame it from the human point of view? Because, well, after all, we're humans. In your work, tell us how you 
translate your knowledge of the natural world into the healing practice that you do? How does that work? I went to the Amazon jungle when I was 20 and spent a lot of time witnessing how the people down there interact with plants. And they do this practice called dieta, which is essentially going into isolation with a plant um, for anywhere from seven, nine days to two years to longer than that. And they study the plant and they study it on all levels, right? So they witness how it's affecting their bodies. They're listening to it every day. They're praying with it. Super simple diet. You know, you're cutting out any sort of desire outside of just connecting to the plant. There's no salt, there's no sugar, there's no oil in your diet. And then, so the word dieta translates to diet. So you're essentially creating this plant as your life force. And through that, you learn so much about the plant. So you learn how it's affecting you physically, but also how it's affecting the emotional body, the spirit body, the energy body. This practice for me showed me how every plant has such an architecture of its own. They're all doorways of consciousness. Inside each plant is animal medicines and stone medicine, different personalities that come through different temple times, different dimensional support that the plants are carrying. And so I started to do this in my early 20s. And from there have just continued to be really re-raised by the plant kingdom and by the earth. And so I bring that into my healing practice. In that way, the imbalances in the human, it's really simple when we start to know the architectures of the plants, their puzzle pieces. Oh, this person is experiencing deficiencies in this way. Well, this plant carries these energies really strong. So let's bring those in to help create harmony. It's really like working with the plants from a holistic perspective. Oh, I have a stomach ache, so I'll take ginger. Stomach ache is from excess fire in the gut. Then the ginger is not going to help. We have to really go deeper to understand what it is that's creating these imbalances and then work with something that's truly going to be the harmonizer. What's the ally for that person? So if somebody's feeling an ailment, having an ailment, and they come to you and you help them with the natural work that you do, how do you overlap that to the need for Western medicine when the person arrives at the place where you need to pick up a more emergency situation or things progress and you need that Western intervention? What's the relationship between those two? Do they function in a way that you feel is good or or does it work opposite of that for you? That Western medicine definitely has its place. Everything's very circumstantial and very much dependent upon the case. I work with a lot of people who are on Western medicine and they also work with herbs to help support that process. For example, somebody is on chemotherapy for breast cancer. They can also be working with some of the herbs to help support that process. The red clover specifically can be worked in conjunction and the red clover has this ability to block off the cancer and stop it from continuing to proliferate. I find that part of the reason that plant medicine works so well is that sometimes we get sick because of our environment. Um, there's so many different things that can create the imbalance, but sometimes the imbalance comes from trauma or our own experience in this life. When it's like that, the plants, like our therapists and our counselors and our doctors, and we work with one plant continually over a period of time, they help show us what the root cause is. And we can get into that place and really start to dismantle the part where the, the dis-ease has its hook. If we can start to find that and get into that, then the real healing takes place. So I think that Western medicine is really good for helping hold space for that process, for the herbs to take their place and do their work. I've had a lot of people get off Western medicine over time working with herbs, but I've had a lot of folks come taking Western medicine to start and then slowly weaning themselves off as they integrate the plant world into their bodies. 
In your own life, what have you done with your medicinal work that has improved your health? And have you ever had more Western inclinations uh, earlier in your life? And how did that change happen for you? I was really healthy as a kid. I was really blessed to not have too many health problems. And then as I became an herbalist, one of my teachers, Matthew Wood, he talks about, be careful what the plants you want to learn. You want to learn yarrow, he says, then you might end up getting cut a lot because Yarrow helps stop bleeding. I've found that like, as I've taken this healing path, I have ended up having different kinds of imbalances and ailments in my life. I haven't had to turn to Western medicine. I haven't chosen to turn to Western medicine. Unia de Gato, Cat's Claw, which comes out of the Amazon, is one of the more powerful plants that I've worked with and has really just shifted my gut biome and so many things. It really activates our inner power, our will, like our will to to really live our purpose in this life, like that original fire that I was talking about earlier and that sense of true power, that power from source and from our inner desire to create a good change on this planet, that that medicine brings that to fruition. And so energetically, it does that. And as we're changing our thoughts and changing like the way we're moving through the world, it's also changing our gut biome, the health and the bacteria and the flora and how our system is interacting, how we're digesting life is changing. And so I had a lot of different gut stuff over the last years. And I found that Unidegato has helped to balance and really stabilize the way that I'm digesting life and digesting food and digesting reality as we know it right now. So say the name of that plant again. Unidegato, cat's claw in English. Its origin is in the Amazon of Peru and it grows all throughout Brazil and different um, different Amazonian regions in South America. And it's a a vine, a woody vine, and it has claws on it that look like a cat's claw. So this is the other beautiful thing, right? Like before there were encyclopedias or Google, we looked to the plants and the plants showed us how they work and what they were for. So this plant carries the spirit of the jaguar. As I was saying earlier, like the plants carrying different animal medicines, this one has jaguar medicine. And so it has this ability to go in and just tear up and completely annihilate any sort of disease or imbalance in the body. So Folks that are listening have probably heard of it in um, conjunction with helping treat Lyme's disease or different kinds of cancers. So people work with it for bigger healing projects. And so in that way, it's been really studied. So for folks who are listening and want to go on Google after and look up Cat's Claw, there's a lot of really fantastic articles about how it works in the body. But it's one of the only plants that's been proven to clean the seven major organ systems in our body. As the jaguar hunts, right, it's like hunting disease and just empties us of these different pathogens. I'm thinking of the experiment the Japanese scientists did, taking Mm -hmm. old bad water and labeling it with different labels like love, generosity, or a negative hate. And the water responded to the energetic labels. Mm -hmm. So the water that had love on it ended up being more pure. So when we talk about the jaguar attacking the disease inside, tearing it apart. I'm also thinking of that experiment because the system may, in fact, understand the energetic metaphorical nature of its relationship to this thing that's coming into it. So mm-hmm. we, we label things, love, hate. So we have all these words for things. Every word has its own energy form. Mm-hmm. So when I say love, we have a certain feeling. When I say hate, you have another feeling. Maybe there's all of this metaphorical um, essentialness being communicated through the unspoken systems that exist. 
the metaphor, right? How we view our lives, how our, how we allow our minds to create our reality is is a huge aspect of our health and and what we're paving for the future. The consciousness and the way that we perceive things is is extremely powerful. The Amazon. You said I went to the Amazon when I was 20. I learned the Amazon River is the largest river in the world. When you stand at its mouth as it enters the sea, the sea is fresh water for a mile or so out because of the powerful flow of the river. And when you stand at the mouth of the Amazon and you look across, you can't see the other side. It's mm -hmm. like well, looking across an ocean. And I also learned that the seven other largest rivers in the world are tributaries to the Amazon. Mm. And that the Amazon basin is the size of the face of the moon. So when you went to the Amazon, what part did you go to? And where were you overwhelmed by the size? You were young, a new traveler, venturing out into an unknown land. What was that like for you? And, and do you go back often or have you been back at all? So I've been back for sure. It's impossible not to go back, I think, once you find something like that. Being really young, it was incredible. The consciousness of the jungle is so big and so profound that living there, you either have to raise your consciousness to the consciousness that's there or you'll get eaten. And that became clear really quick. Well, I entered the jungle in Ecuador. I went down the Amazon basin in what were called plantain ships, these little boats that travel down the Amazon and they drop off boxes of edible plantains for people to eat. I was trying to go as deep into the Amazon as I could because I was really fearless and 21, I think at that time, and just really wanting to learn this world. Second, I got down there and started to get a taste of the Amazon. I felt like there was a life force and a spirit and a, a mother that I was yearning to meet. I started in Ecuador and I ended up in the Yasuni National Forest um, with the Warani people. And they invited me to live with them. And so that was super incredible and showing up to their lands and just the way that they welcomed me in. And I, I lived in a hammock and spent maybe a month with them and watch their way of life, their way of interacting with the plants and connecting to the children and just how simple and yet profound their reality is. They're so embedded in all of the life that surrounds them. You know, they're really in communication with the plants, with the river, with the animals, because they have to be. It's not because they're spiritual, because they're alive, because they would need to survive. They're in this constant relationship with the life that surrounds them. What were some of your daily activities when you were living with the people? Hunting, going into the river and, and catching fish. We eat a lot of piranha and a lot of white fish. Helping wash the dishes and take care of the children. Really simple activities. It's a lot about keeping the order and keeping life well in the space. Sweeping the space out, taking care of the children, making sure there's food. They would praise, like every morning they would get up and they would give praise and give thanks to the world. The spirit of life and reciprocity is really strong there. And so in every way that you can remember to say thank you and remember to engage with the environment. The piranha fish, we hear horror stories of the piranha fish, yet it's a fish you caught to eat. So what's the story on the piranha fish? I mean, all I know is they're delicious. Yeah, I never got bit by anything. You know, I never, I did run into an anaconda later in Iquitos, further down the Amazon. I am in Peru, was walking in the forest and ran into a giant anaconda that had witnessed me well before I witnessed it. And it was standing up and staring at me. And that was an incredible experience. I mean, it had to be at least 18 feet long and, you know, a good foot and a half, two feet wide, thick, a very thick creature. The guardian, the guardian of the Amazon, you know, I really felt it to be this 
protector and a weaving of the worlds. You know, down there, they say that the the serpent energy is the the lower world and then the jaguar is the middle world. And in that way too, like jaguars can't lift their heads, right? They just like look straight all the time. And then there's the condor, like connecting to the heavens. So to meet the the underworld face to face, to meet the serpent, say hello and greet the Amazon in that way. I feel like that was when I fully got initiated and welcomed into that territory. So tell us more of the story of meeting the anaconda. You, you're out walking around and the next thing you know, you're looking at an 18 foot snake that's as thick as a tractor tire. What <laughs> was that like? How did it happen? Traveling down there, I, I would meet people that had been also deeply immersed. I was the only white girl around for a long time. And then I'd come upon another person of Western descent and ask, how'd you get out here? And where have you been? And so I met a guy who's like, you've got to get to this guy in Iquitos. He's an amazing shaman and he's way out. You know, we took this long boat and mile marker 67 way out down this long road in Iquitos. Then there's a tienda, which is just a small store where they sell some food. Okay, you have to hike three miles out behind the tienda. By the time I finally get to the tienda, the sun's setting, there's nobody around but some drunk guy with a machete. And I'm like, okay, this is not going to go well. And I'm just this little girl with a giant backpack, so naive and full of love, inspired by this ability to go meet the shaman. Luckily, he's a shaman, so he knew I was coming. At the tienda, there's the drunk guy, and I'm not going to stand around and talk with him for too long. So I try and hold my center and my power and have a little chat and then go behind the tienda and start to walk when the trail is basically non-existent. So I'm just walking. And eventually... I hear this voice say hello in English. And I'm like, what the heck? And it's the shaman. He actually is an English speaker. He'd been down there for 30 years. And the Amazonian people revere him as a shaman. And he's like, I knew you were coming. And I knew you'd need help. (laughs) Yeah, he gathered me and brought me to his home and didn't say much while I was there. But it was on his property that I walked around and went off into the jungle from his land. And that's where I ran into the anaconda. And he was so profound when I got there. He wanted to learn permaculture. I wanted to learn how to grow the food and the way he was growing it. And he's like, no, you just have to sit and observe. You're not allowed to do anything. And I asked him how he grew his garden. And he said, love and attention. Anything in life, if you give it love and attention, it'll grow. Your children, your family, your relationships, your gardens. That's the secret. It was from his land that I ended up getting to run into the beautiful anaconda. So when you ran into the anaconda, what happened? What did it look like? How did you notice it? It was huge. It was coming out of the the forest. There was a tree that had fallen next to it. So I could kind of keep track of the scale of how thick this creature was. And I would say it had to be at least a foot and a half thick. I couldn't see the end of it. It was slithering over itself and spiraling and I couldn't see the end of the snake. I just had this moment of deep awe and respect. And then I just absolutely ran the fastest I probably ever ran in my life back to the house of the shaman. And did you tell the shaman you had seen this snake? Oh, yeah. And he was so casual. He's like, oh, yeah, we've got anacondas. So now you're practicing all this. You're living in Barnardsville, which is outside of Asheville, probably 20 minutes going north on Interstate 26 or the Interstate 26 extension. This is Highway 23 is actually what it is going north. What's it like living in a small town like Barnardsville? It would be more apt to describe it as a village, really. It's not even a town. Yeah, it is like village life. And the forest around here is a jungle. These mountains called me here. And I feel so honored and grateful to be able to be embedded in this North American jungle. It's been really peaceful and it's been such a a wonderful home to integrate and to share what I found in the jungle and to return back to North America and start to offer 
these deep immersions with our local plants and to really get to know the plants of this area in that way. So do you find the plants in Western North Carolina, which offers probably more medicinal plants than any area in the whole Northern Hemisphere or the Appalachian region, not just Western North Carolina, do you see any of the plants you're working with in Western North Carolina, do they have relationships that would match what you found in the Amazon? Anything that would be comparable or is it dramatically different? Every plant has its power in its place. I've been working a lot with the woods nettle here, offered it again to people up here and just witnessing people's experience, the transformation that people go through working with these plants. It's very similar. The plants have a way of just tearing down who we think we are and what we think we're supposed to do and reminding us of who we really are and what our heart wants. So they make us more of who we are, no matter where they're from. What would be an example of how a plant would make a person more of who they are and how would that person know they have become more of who they are? But how do those plants enhance that process? Do they speed it up? Does it expand out? It's a good question. I think it speeds it up in the sense that like the plants have that knowledge. They really allow themselves and know that they have to die in order to live. We need to really be able to peel ourselves apart and let things die in order to blossom. And the plants do that every year, right? It's like they die back and then the next year they get bigger. You know, there's more flowers for them to offer, to give. They help code us in that memory of knowing how to let go. And when I witness people out there in isolation with the plants, every morning I go and I bring them their tea for the day and I bring them a simple meal. Sometimes we do some counseling depending on where the folks are at. I find that people are dying. They're realizing that there's these things, these constructs, these belief systems, even just feeling like the the waves of social media and things that are in their field, like they're feeling these things die, particularly their worldview, what they thought they were supposed to be doing or what they thought was important in their lives. Over time, the plants kill the parts of us that aren't helpful. And then they rebuild us. They're not just there to create death, but they are also extremely lively, health-provoking beings. Death is such a dramatic idea. We have it planted in our minds in the same way that one might look at Mount Everest. My God, the biggest (laughs) thing of all. And yet the skin does fall off. Fingernails do grow and they go away. Maybe we're talking about something else here. Maybe Mm -hmm. we're not talking about death. Mm -hmm. Maybe we might be wise to revise the way we even think of death. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking, I think about death. I think, well, it's dramatic because it's unknown. It's part of that change that leaves us in a completely different place than we were prior to the event. Mm -hmm. And yet the event itself, one second, that's it. Not that dramatic. So maybe dying isn't so permanent as we think it is. The only way that you can really use the word death is if you also use the word life. There's no separation between life and death. And I think that's coming out of that linear way of experiencing the world. You live and then you die. The way that I have experienced life to be, it's a spiral. You can't die without living again. Perhaps it's eternal and perhaps we could replace death with renewal. As we're letting things go in our lives, we live more strongly. Once we let something go, we're able to be more alive. Yeah, and I think maybe death is a way for all of us to understand impermanence. He died, she died, the plant died, the jaguar died. The constant flow of life mm-hmm. that requires us to sometimes think that the flow of life stops and that stoppage, we use the term death. When something dies, it's giving life to something else. So who's to say that one is any more important than the other? 
That's true. People have been talking about this forever. The people in the Amazon are working with the idea in one way, going out in the forest. The people in New York City on Wall Street, buying and selling stock, they're working with the same kind of impermanence, but at a, on a different level. So the whole thing is functioning at the same time, which makes me think we might be <laughs> spending a lot of time in conversations about this when maybe we would be better to talk about putting butter on toast <laughs> and having jelly for breakfast with a little tea. That's easier to understand, <laughs> much more grounded in the delight of the human condition. It's a worthy thing of considering in order to consider death is to really consider life, to really live our lives and really give ourselves that opportunity to explore this creation and explore what it is to be human and have fun with it inside the mystery. We have to come to terms with the fact that we won't always be around in this way, that we don't always have this exact opportunity of life. And I think that helps us live. That's true. And yet the bees will always be on the screen, no matter whether I'm here or not. I'm sitting here yeah. in my little spot right now looking out, the door's open and there's a bee on the screen. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not the bee that was there last year. As far as I'm concerned, it's the same bee. Switching just a little bit here, when you were a little child running around, did you run around in the city? Did you run around in the country? Where were you when you first came up in the world? I was sprouted in New Hampshire. I grew up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, probably in a town with more cows than people. Our state motto was live free or die. My mom was like a busy mom at home. Super, super wonderful mother. But uh, I remember her wanting some peace and quiet. And she used to tell me that there were aliens in the woods and to go find them. And so I'd spend the day hunting aliens and just always had a love for nature. I lived outside on this mountain and I just played outside all day. And that's definitely where my wonder and my connection began. Did you find any aliens in the woods? No, lots of very cool spiders. In places where I thought that I might be able to find an alien, I remember finding many spiders that were kind of alien in their own right. So far, no aliens. Uh, nor, I suppose, you found no expat leprechauns underneath the glens in the woods either, did you? <laughs> I don't have to answer that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe you found a leprechaun. When I was growing up, I played also in the woods. That environment allowed me to believe those aliens were there and the leprechauns were there and even little dragons were there. Mm -hmm. So to this day, when I suspend my logical thinking and drift into the more magical thinking, I can see the aliens in the woods. I can see yeah. the dragons and the leprechauns, although yeah. I've never saw a leprechaun in the Appalachian woods, but I do believe I did spot one once on the on the the high road outside of Clifton headed to the sea in Ireland. He mm -hmm. was just walking along casually and I thought I saw him out of the corner of my eye. I can't say for sure, but I think I did. There's plenty of beings for sure out there keeping it all intact. That's what the Irish say. So anything else you would like to reflect on around medicine before we close our interview? We are medicine. We as people are the medicine. Our awareness and our connection to all of life is medicine. And returning to that place within this great tapestry of earth, the biggest healing we can do is to return to our, our roots. If people would like to reach out to you, how would they find you? Wildheartmedicinals.net is my website. 
Yeah, we have two dietas coming up, two isolations with the plants like I was talking about. So I've got one going on this weekend with the uni de gato. I've got another one with uni de gato, August 31st to September 3rd. Um, so people can find that on my website at wildheartmedicinals.net. My email's on there too. You're welcome to sign up for my newsletter and all that good stuff. And then, yeah, I also have a, a rose immersion coming up too, September 22nd to the 25th. Julie Hatch, thank you for spending a little time with us on Twice 5 Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Julie Hatch. Her website is Wild Heart Medicinals. Sometimes when I spell medicinals, I forget to add all of the I's. M-E-D-I-C-I-N-A-L-S. Sometimes one of those I's just seems to slip away. So it's wildheartmedicinals.net if you want to know more about Julie's work. When Julie was talking about playing in the woods in the mountains in New Hampshire when she was growing up, it reminded me of the same thing when I was growing up. And the thing that strikes me about the woods and the natural environment, it makes a lot of noise. And I mean noise in the best sense of noise. The birds singing, the leaves rustling, the stream flowing over the rocks, gurgling as it goes. The natural environment is always singing, always harmonizing, always inviting you to join in its symphony of song. Because I work freelance, I can work anywhere, and much of the work I do happens in Taos, New Mexico. The sounds out here are very different than the sounds you hear in western North Carolina, which offers different symphonies than in the West. The unbridled wind makes a lot of noise in the West. Converse that with the wind blowing through the trees in the east not as unbridled because the trees slow the wind down and make the leaves rustle or in deep winter make the stems rattle now of course there are trees in the west and when the big wind blows through the leaves rustle and the stems rattle as well just not as many trees as you have in the deciduous forest of the east when i was growing up in western north carolina one of the things i treasured most were the nights when the trees came alive with sound. So the trees were singing. All of the insects, all of the tree frogs were there, and it really was a symphony. And I would listen to that as a boy, and I don't remember if I thought of it as a symphony back then, but I do remember feeling quite at home, surrounded by the sounds the trees made at night. And because my brother and I, plus all of our friends, played in the woods all the time, we learned to listen to the sounds of the woods in the day as well. And summertime was most especially loud. Of course, fall has its nature as well, and winter and spring, especially spring when the birds come back and they start to sing and the broadwing hawks come back and swirl around above the hills getting ready to make their nests and they make a certain call when they arrive in the area they always return to. So the birds in all seasons contribute to the symphony the forest and the fields and the natural environment offer when you pause to listen. Now, I'm thinking about this because in the past 20 years, I have spent most every summer in Taos. I love spending summers in Taos. Air is cool, beautiful scenery, the rainbows come, all kinds of weather conditions, all sorts of symphonic sounds. The coyotes just before dawn, just before the sun comes up. 
couldn't be more delightful mixed in with the early morning sounds of Taos. Even so, throughout all the summers I've spent in Taos, a part of me longed for the western North Carolina hardwoods, longed to hear those sounds, because those are the sounds I grew up with. So this May, much to my delight, Jennifer Pickering, who is the director of Leaf Global Arts in Asheville. Leaf Global Arts is the organization that produces the Leaf Festival, along with Jennifer's husband, Lee Mayer. Both invited me to be the first writer-in-residence on their property, which is called Lake Eden Retreat, and that's where much of the Leaf Festival happens. It's a beautiful location, about six miles west of Black Mountain, North Carolina, headed toward Asheville, about 70 acres of property, and Jennifer and Lee have a retreat business they run along with a wedding business on that property. If you've ever been to Omega in New York, imagine the same kind of beauty that surrounds Omega surrounding Lake Eden Retreat. While the beauty is similar between Lake Eden Retreat and Omega, Omega is set up to accommodate hundreds and hundreds of people. Lake Eden Retreat is more bespoke. It's designed to accommodate 25 people at a time with a large house called Mountain Stream where everyone gathers and apartments and houses surrounding it on the hills where people spend their evenings. Beautiful places, well-appointed apartments, small houses, cabins. So when Jennifer and Lee asked me to come and be at Mountain Stream as the first writer-in-residence, I was thrilled to be there at Mountain Stream. Now, there are a couple of reasons. One, the place is so easy to be in. It's so easy to sit and write, looking out over the fields, looking out into the beautiful trees of the western North Carolina forest. It's also the former administration building for Black Mountain College. Lake Eden Retreat is on the former campus of Black Mountain College. Black Mountain College was one of the first alternative type educational institutions to emerge in the American experience. And the people who attended Black Mountain College went on to influence our culture. And even though you may not see it today in the things you wear or what you buy, much of the experimentation that took place at Black Mountain College during the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s influenced the way designers, musicians, dancers, and engineers, architects think even today. Buckminster Fuller erected the first geodesic dome on the campus of Black Mountain College. The story goes they put the dome up before lunch. It didn't quite work. It fell over. They had lunch and came back and did it in the afternoon, and the thing stood. I don't know if that story is true or not, but it is kind of a fun story to tell. So I spent a month there, mid-June to mid-July of this summer, and I enjoyed hearing all of those sounds that I had heard when I was a boy. It brought back a, a lot of fantastic memories, and I was asked to take care of, a, of the cutest dog on earth named Chewy. Chewy had a little ribbon in her hair, and Chewy's old. Chewie's still very much alive, but Chewie did totter around a bit. Didn't matter. I just loved engaging with Chewie, and I never thought I was really that much of a dog person. But lo and behold, 
I just love taking Chewie out. We walked down to the lake, and Chewie would wallow in the lake, and Chewie looked a bit like a beaver because she had so much fluffy, big hair, and it was absolutely delightful. So I wish I could tell you that as the writer-in-residence, I wrote volumes and volumes. Well, I wrote, and I enjoyed it. And it was really nice, but I will tell you, I took Chewy for a walk at least three times a day because there was just something about Chewy puttering along up the dirt road, circling around down to the lake that delighted me while I was listening to the sounds that the symphony made in the trees. One of the reasons I'm focusing on the sounds and the songs the natural world makes is because, on a more serious note, I heard a news report on NPR talking about how the Taliban in Afghanistan had banned all music. The report also said they were burning instruments, going around getting the guitars, the mandolins, fiddles, whatever people had, piling them in a pile and setting them on fire. And as I was listening to this report, I looked at my guitar, which was on the couch. I've had that guitar since 1993. I bought it from B3, as in the number, B3 Vintage Guitars in Asheville. It's a Blue Ridge. I paid $290 for it, along with a tuner, which I paid $60 for, and a set of strings, which I paid $5 for. The whole thing cost $355, with tax $21.30, coming to a total of $376.30. How do I know that? I'm looking at the receipt that came with a guitar, which I left in the case. So as I'm standing there looking at this guitar, thinking about how emotionally attached I am to it, because I play it all the time, I could only imagine how the people in Afghanistan felt when the Taliban came to their houses, took all their instruments, put them in a pile, and burned them. Because musical instruments give us so much pleasure, it's easy to understand how you can get emotionally attached to the instrument. Also, one of the things that happened with my guitar, I didn't play it for a long time. I left it in its case. So about eight, nine years ago, I decided I'm, I'm going to start playing this guitar again. So I took it out of its case and started to play it. What I have noticed over the last number of years playing this guitar, its characteristics have changed. The vibrations that happen when you strum those strings affect the wood, and it changes the way the wood makes the sound when the sound comes out of the guitar. And because the more I play it, the more the sound changes, it seems like the guitar is alive. And I know a lot of people who say that about violins and other instruments as well, if you have a solid body electric guitar, you might not have the same result. That said, I imagine the vibrations change the way the guitar plays, even if it's a solid body guitar. So as I'm looking at my guitar while I'm listening to this news report, I started to think about the idea of a group of people thinking they can ban music. That's when I started to wonder if the Taliban planned to ban birds. How about banning the wind? How about banning the creatures that sing in the trees? How about banning the spoken word, people using their voices to communicate? I thought, I'll bet those people, those Taliban people haven't thought of that. They're banning music because it's 
sinful maybe because it goes against their interpretation of religion they want to deny people music and yet the whole world is made of music everything is a song the entire proposition is about singing when you speak you're singing when i speak like i am right now i am using my voice in a melodic way to communicate this to you so as I listened to that, I thought, what foolishness, how foolish it is to think you can ban music. Do you monitor the showers people take when they sing in the shower? Do you take away the hum someone plays when they're doing their work? What about whistling? If you're going to ban music, do you ban the whistle? Do you ban a thunderstorm? Do you ban the way the rivers roar. Can you ban music? No, you cannot ban music. You can stop people from playing music, but you can't ban music. And I thought, what a foolish, foolish, foolish thing to think you could do that because music, our voices, the way we sing, the way the world sings to us, it's built into our functions. It's what we do. It's how we exist in the world. Now, you may not think your voice, you may not think the way you make sounds is part of the musical symphony the trees play at night in western North Carolina at Lake Eden Retreat, or the coyotes sing before the sun rises in the morning. Outside my back door, where I'm recording this just off the Hondo Seco Road outside of Taos in New Mexico, and yet the noises we make belong to the entire offering the earth makes in terms of its songs, its symphony, the way the earth communicates with us. You simply can't stop people from creating things like songs and music. This brings to mind a poem by Stephen Crane. It's a very short poem titled, I Saw a Man Pursuing the Horizon. And the horizon can be anything. It can be music. It can be your dreams. It can be your hopes. And here's the, here's the poem. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never... You lie, he cried, and ran on. So often you run across people who will tell you you can never pursue the horizon. And of course the only appropriate response is you lie, and then you run on and you pursue the horizon. Another line of verse that I have always treasured comes from Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, and it goes like this. Ulysses is speaking after he's come back from all of his journeys and he's still thinking of more horizons, more places to go, more things to do until he dies. So Ulysses says, I am a part of all that I have met, yet all experience is an arch, where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever as I move. That line's worth repeating. I am a part of all that I have met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever as I move. And so the Taliban thinks that by banning music they will have power over the people. 
By banning music, they will control the way people think. They can mold an entire population away from its natural inclination to travel beyond the margins of what they see, go past the horizon, rise into their own creative urges. Well, like I said earlier, that's a foolish, foolish thing to think because you can never stop people from trying to go in the direction they were naturally born to go in. And song is certainly part of that direction. Coming back to what Julie was talking about, going out into the woods, she met the anaconda. The anaconda created a kind of song, a kind of language. When I was at Lake Eden Retreat and Chewie and I went around the dirt road and down to the lake and Chewie, Chewie was wallowing in the lake, that's a kind of song. It's a joy. It's the, it's the essence. I mean, coming back to when you were born. You were born. You started crying. Your cry was a song. You cannot ban the cry of a child at birth. You cannot ban that song. That song will always be there. And when we all think of the child crying at birth, the joyous entry into the world and all that it offers, good and bad, we can hardly divorce that from the songs that we all sing. And speaking of singing, I'm going to have a guest on this show a little later. Her name is Lynn Rosser, and I would like to offer you a song that she sings. And the song is titled, appropriately, Listening to Trees. So here's Lynn Rosser singing Listening to Trees as we get close to the end of our show. Feel the surprise sink deep Drink the sun from my leaves in the sun caresses branches sway I hear my name in the silence the rivers rush the bridges grow I am one with the flow
Lynn Rosser singing her song, Listening to Trees. And when I hear beautiful music like what Lynn just sang, or other music throughout the world, I'm convinced no matter how hard the Taliban tries to ban music, they will never succeed at doing that. They cannot ban a baby crying. It's just simply not possible. They might try. It'd be interesting to see. If they made an effort to do that, how would you ban the baby's cry or ban the wind? You know as well as I do, that's not going to happen. They may try, but it will always be a failure. People will always sing. Babies will always cry. And the wind will always speak through the trees. And you can listen to those trees and you can hear that music and have the confidence that it's always going to be there, no matter who tries to ban it or get rid of it or control it. Even Chewie barking after she came out of the lake, part of the music. Can you ban dogs barking or coyotes singing? Absolutely not. So there is medicine throughout the natural world. The plants can talk, as Julie pointed out. The trees sing. We do the same. And we listen. We listen to many things. And one thing for sure, I'm really grateful that you've been listening to this show. And now that we're almost to the top of our hour, I would just like to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville, 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Walter Parks, thank you for our theme song. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, WalterParks.com, great place to go. Devine Dial, you manage WPVMFM. I bow to you for that job that you do all the time. Robin Collier, the same for you in Taos, New Mexico, KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio. You can always reach me. My email is nave at jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you and like to remind you that we are sponsored by 
the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to go. You'll find some workshops. There's even a free Saturday morning gathering if you would like to become part of a writing workshop community. It's a Zoom thing and it's always available for anyone who wants to come and there is no charge. Imaginativestorm.com So till we meet again, keep on making that music. Pursue that horizon. Keep on trucking, as they say in some of the songs. Thank you ever so much for listening and I do hope you come back again very, very soon like for the next show. Meanwhile, hey, maybe I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.